right. I'd like to welcome, yeah. I'd like to welcome all of you on this holiday weekend. We're so glad you've uh, chosen to be at Grace at one of our different campuses. I pray that God really meets with you. That's always our prayer, right? When we come together, that God would really meet with us in a special way and open his word to us for our understanding. I want to begin today in this message with two passages of Scripture that I believe are among the most important when you're doing a study on God's will. If you were doing a systematic look at God's will, and we're kind of approaching it that way, looking at various scriptures and seeing how they all blend and tie together, these are two passages that you definitely don't want to miss. So I'm going to read them to you, say a couple of words about them, and then I'm going to tell you a Bible story that really, I think, is a brilliant illustration of these two passages. The first one is Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And then here's the thought that I want you to really focus on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me now, there will be many, many times on this journey. Now remember, we're talking about a journey to the future, a journey to heaven, a journey to the celestial city where our Lord, our guide is walking with us every step of the way, there are going to be many times where you just don't understand what's going on, where his infinite perspective is much greater than your finite perspective. So when that happens, we shouldn't be shocked, honestly. That should just be expected. And honestly, the more we embrace that and just understand that right up front in our walk with God, the less frustration we're going to have when it actually happens. But here's the second passage that I believe is, is a classic. Many of you probably memorized these verses from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Or I prefer an alternate reading there, and Hebrew words and phrases are often a bit ambiguous so that you can kind of parlay them in a number of ways. I prefer the reading, he will direct your paths. Now, what does it mean not to lean on your own understanding? Does that mean God wants us to check our brains at the door? Is that what that's about? Hey, this God saying, look, if you're a Christian, I don't want you to think. That'll mess you up. I don't want you to use your brain or your reason in any way. Is that what God's saying? I hope you know better than that. God gave you a brain. He wants you to use it. God's call is, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. He gave us the ability to reason. He wants us to use it for our good and his glory. But I believe one of the keys to understanding this passage in Proverbs 
is that if we're not going to lean on our own understanding, what that ultimately issues in is this. God has the right, get this now, God has the right to operate in my life without explaining himself. God has the right to be working in my life secretly, behind the scenes, in ways that are higher than mine, that I don't understand, directing my paths, and he doesn't need to explain himself every step of the way. Now, let me just ask you a question. I, I like to sometimes get a show of hands, so I'm going to ask you for that now, please, at all of our locations. If you have walked with the Lord for a while... And you have occasionally hit those seasons, you may be in one right now, by the way, where you just don't really understand what God is doing in a certain situation, right? Maybe you're in a season where you're just a little disoriented or confused about what God is up to. Would you just slip your hand up if you've ever been in a season like that? Or maybe you're there now, wow, wow, that is virtually everyone. I know what that's like because... I've followed Christ now for decades, and I'm going to tell you, there are times when I really wonder what he's up to. But his wisdom, honestly, is much more profound than ours, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So because this is true, here's what this journey requires. I'm just going to put it to you today as plainly as I can. We've got to trust our guide, our pilot, our captain, whatever metaphor you want to use for the Lord on this journey, because he really knows what he's doing. But see, that's precisely where the problem comes in for many of us. If we're just keeping it real honest and just kind of down to earth, the problem is we don't trust God. We don't. We trust us. We trust what we can see and feel, what we can measure with our empirical senses, what we can understand with our own minds, what we can explain. That we trust. But anything beyond that, come on. We don't really trust it, many of us. And if we're going to have confidence that we're walking in God's will, we have to learn to trust that our guide, the Lord, actually knows how to guide us, that he actually knows what he's doing. Let me illustrate this. In a couple of weeks, Debbie and I are going to go on a mission trip. It's just going to be fairly brief. We're going to fly from Albany to Newark, and then we're going to fly from Newark to London Heathrow, and then from Heathrow on to Warsaw in Poland, which is our ultimate destination. I'm going to be teaching and preaching in a leadership conference there, some pastors around the country of Poland. We've had some ministry there in the past. We're excited to go back. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to minister. Please pray for us, by the way, and I'll, I'll mention it again, perhaps. I just would love your prayers for that. So let's suppose that when we get on the plane in Newark International Airport, I go to my seat, but I start thinking, you know, I don't really know the captain of this aircraft, and I don't know if I can trust him. So I get up, and I walk up to the flight deck. Now, you've got to imagine with me, because obviously I wouldn't be able to do this. 
in our day and age, but just imagine that I can walk up to the captain and tap him on the shoulder and say, uh, hello, captain, sir, I'd like to meet you. He says, yes, I am the captain. May I help you with something? And I say, well, sir, actually you can. I don't want to offend you, but I don't really know you. And I'm about to go on this flight, and so I'm not sure I can trust you. But I trust me. And so I'm just wondering, Captain, I'd really like to fly this plane myself. And he'd probably do what you just did. He would probably get a real kick out of this idiot, whoever this dude is, who thinks he can fly this, fly this plane. And perhaps he would have a little fun. He'd say, well, you don't know the first thing about flying a plane. And I'd say, now, sir, that's where you're wrong. Because I read David McCullough's book, The Wright Brothers. So I know how this whole thing started. And I've watched three or four YouTube videos on flight. So I believe I'm ready. And so, look, I'm going to go ahead and get in the cockpit here. We're going to get this thing out on the end of the runway. We're going to turn the brakes loose and just rev it up and go down. And what, 30, 40 seconds, we'll be up to about 180 miles an hour. That's kind of the point of no return, they say. And so I'm going to pull back on the throttle, and we're going to have a beautiful takeoff here. And then I, I think the flight's like six or seven hours with a good tailwind. And so I pull out my little compass that I use when I'm hiking in the woods, and I say, oh, look, I got my compass right here. And I know from looking at a map that London Heathrow is kind of due east of here, right? So I'm going to fly for six or seven hours, and then I'm going to start looking for the White Cliffs of Dover, and then I'll take a turn north. And I'll look for the Thames River, and I'm sure I'll be able to find Heathrow somehow, and we'll come in for a nice landing. And the captain would probably look at me and go, dude, <laughs> you are something else. As far as flying this plane, your knowledge is at best moronic. And if you think you're capable of flying this plane, you are insane. But sir... If you will simply return to your seat and relax, and trust me, I promise you that I'll get you to Heathrow. In fact, I'll get you there in time for breakfast. Now, I hope you'll pardon that ludicrous illustration. But isn't that often what we really do with God? Isn't it? We say, uh, uh, Captain, Captain, you know, I've got places I want to go in my life and places I want to be and things I want to do. And I know you're supposed to guide me, but I don't really trust you because I don't really honestly know you that well, but I trust me. And look, I know you're supply, supposed to try to guide this thing, but, but look, if you're going to do that, could you at least explain to me every detail of the way what's happening? In fact, here's what we say to God essentially, if I'm going to trust you like that, you owe it to me to explain everything along the way. That's the way we tend to think. So let me say this again. It's such an important principle. God has the right to operate in my life without explaining himself every step of the way. His ways are higher than mine. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I cannot lean just on my own understanding of what I can get from my own reason because often his ways are supra-rational. I can't grasp them. My wisdom is at best moronic compared to his. 
And so I've got to learn to trust him. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So please understand, when Debbie and I get on that plane a couple of weeks from now to fly to Poland, it will be with this understanding that we're to put our very lives into the hands of the pilot and the crew, and it's their responsibility to get us there. Not ours. And we don't need to know exactly how. By the way, I've done a lot of flying through the years, and I want to tell you, often the predetermined plan doesn't really happen, right? I've been on an airplane before that tried to take off, but one of the engines burst into flames, and all these fire trucks began to rush, and there we were. What a party. Woo, that was fun. I've been on a couple of flights that got off to a good start, it seemed, but then there was apparently some kind of mechanical malfunction, and they literally turned around and went right back to where we started, and we had to wait and wait and eventually board another plane. I've been on numerous flights that were redirected because of weather conditions, changing circumstances, or some sort of mechanical issue. Plan B's happen, as we saw last week. But our goal is to get to Poland. That's the destination, and the details of the process may be a bit different than we think. God's will is often the same way. Now, with that as a foundation, I want to illustrate this truth by looking at a classic story from the Bible. For those of you who know the story of Joseph well, this will be a nice refresher and I hope may give a couple of additional insights. For those of you who maybe don't know the story of Joseph, get ready because this is a provocative story with a lot of twists and turns. It's found in the book of Genesis. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons, and he was his father's favorite. In fact, while the other sons went out to work in the field, the dad, Jacob, allowed Joseph to stay home. He didn't really have to work out with the other sons. And his father showed him favoritism. He, in fact, he knitted him this wonderful little coat of many colors and gave it to him. And his brothers hated him for that. They literally hated Joseph because of their dad's preferential treatment of him. And because he stayed at home, Joseph had a lot of time to, to sleep, honestly. And so... One day, when his brothers came home, he said, look, I had a dream this afternoon. And in my dream, there were these 11 sheaves of corn, and that represents the 11 of you. And all of you were bowing down to my sheaf of corn. You guys were bowing down to me. My sheaf stood upright. And your sheaves of corn, all 11 of you, bowed down to my sheaf of corn. Isn't that interesting, brothers? And they're rolling their eyes, and their bitterness is growing, and they think, how obnoxious can this kid become? And they just see his pride is overweening and seems to be growing day by day. Another day they came home, and he said, I had another dream. And during my nap today, it's like there were 11 stars. That's 11 of you. And the 11 stars bowed down to my star. Now, how stars bowed down, I have no idea. But you know how weird dreams can be. 
but your stars and the sun and the moon bowed down to my star. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, brothers? And their animosity toward Joseph was growing daily. He was so pompous and full of himself. And the whole family got angry this time, including the father. And the brother said, enough is enough. And somebody suggested that they kill him. But the oldest brother, Reuben, said, no, let's not kill him. Let's at least make some money out of him. And so they decided that the next time he brought them food out in the field, they would catch him, kidnap him, and sell him as a slave to somebody coming by. And so they did. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver to some Ishmaelites that were passing through on their way to Egypt. There was a huge market for slaves in Egypt. And so Joseph found himself, 17 years old, in a caravan, heading across the Sinai Desert, and they auctioned him on the slave market in Egypt to the highest bidder, and the highest bidder happened to be a man named Potiphar. Now let's push pause right there in our story. We're talking in this series about the will of God. Now, if you're wondering about the will of God and how God, supposedly this loving Father, is going to guide you in your life, if you push pause right there and took a snapshot, if Joseph, Joseph took a snapshot of his life, what might he conclude? I tell you, he might conclude that life is like a feather floating on the winds of fate. If he took a snapshot just right there and just looked at the minutes and the hours right there, he might conclude that life is one whimsical series of random and meaningless events where there is no purpose whatsoever behind them. But now let's go on. Meanwhile, back at home, Joseph's brothers took his coat of many colors. They ripped it up a bit. They drenched it with the blood of a goat, and they took it home to their father. We said, they said, Father, we found his coat. And they were looking all sad. It looks like Joseph's coat, doesn't it, Dad? And look, it's covered with blood. It, it's ripped up. I mean, I, it, I shudder to think, but it looks like a wild beast must have mauled him. Poor guy. He must have been killed by a wild animal. And with his heart broken, Jacob took his son's bloodied coat in his hands. He held it in his hands and wept and wept bitterly. And for years and years, he mourned Joseph's death, thinking he was dead. While the brothers all kept this one big secret. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Potiphar saw the abilities that Joseph had. And he put him in charge of his household. Mrs. Potiphar was also impressed. And she's tried to seduce Joseph. He came into her room. She said to him, look, come and sleep with me. Nobody will ever know. It's just between the two of us. She grabbed his coat. He ran away out into the street, leaving his coat in her hand. And then when Mr. Potiphar came home that day, she accused Joseph of attempting to rape her. And Potiphar, believing his wife, had Joseph thrown in prison. And he stayed in that prison for about 13 years until he was 30 years of age. Again, pause it right there. You're walking with God. 
you're a believer in the God Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth, that people tell you is loving and kind and caring. But if you just push pause on this story right there and just look at the hours and the minutes of Joseph's life, what might you conclude? I think the picture's actually getting worse, honestly. I think Joseph might conclude if he took a snapshot right here that not only is life like some whimsical feather floating on the winds of fate, but you know what? Even when you do the right thing, you get punished for it. I mean, my goodness, even if there is a God, he must be some sadistic monster that allows you to get punished even when you do the right thing. That might be Joseph's conclusion if he just looked at the hours and the minutes and the events of his life up to this point. But now let's go on. For most of those years in prison, he's just a prisoner trying to survive. But after about 10 years, he noticed one day that two of his fellow prisoners, one of them had been a butler in Pharaoh's palace, the other had been a baker for Pharaoh, he noticed they were rather forlorn and downcast. And he asked them, why, why do you guys look so glum? They said, well, we both had dreams and we don't know the interpretation of them, but they were really weird. And Joseph said, well, well God can give you the interpretation of dreams. Tell me the dream and I'll tell you the meaning. And the butler said, well, I dreamed that there was this grapevine and there were three branches on the vine and they blossomed and ripened into grapes and I squeezed the grapes. You know how weird dreams can be. I squeezed the grapes and the juice came into Pharaoh's cup and I gave it to Pharaoh. What a weird dream. I couldn't believe it. And the baker said, well, I dreamed I had three baskets of bread on my head. And this was for Pharaoh, but the birds came, and I was so frustrated. The birds kept eating the bread out of the basket on the top of my head. And so Joseph said, let me tell you the meaning of these dreams. And boy, was it good news and bad news. He said to the baker, tough news to hear, guy. But the three baskets represent three days. And in three days, Pharaoh, <laughs> brace yourself, is going to hang you on a tree and the birds are actually going to come and eat your flesh. I assume that was a pretty bad day for the baker. But he said to the butler, look, better news for you. In three days, Pharaoh is going to release you and you will once again become his private cupbearer and you will serve him wine, the juice from the grapes of the vine. And when that happens, butler, please remember me. Please remember me when life is going well for you and ask Pharaoh to release me. Well, guess what, gang? The butler was restored and the baker was hanged exactly as Joseph had interpreted those dreams. But when the butler got back into Pharaoh's palace, guess what? He had amnesia. He totally forgot about Joseph. At least he forgot about him for a couple of years. Now again, once more, let's push pause real quick. Push pause. Gang, is life going downhill or what? I mean, again, I got to ask once again, please, if you've been told there's a great God in heaven, if you've been told that he created, if you've been told that he cares about people and you're living this, push pause. 
Just look at the minutes and the hours of his life. Look at the happenings. What would you conclude? I'm telling you, if there is some God of this universe, he must be worse than a monster. I mean, is he playing tricks with me? Not only do I get punished for doing good, not only do I get sold into slavery, but here again, I'm just trying to help a couple of guys out. I interpret the dream properly and accurately, and then the butler forgets all about me. I guess there's no good deed that goes unpunished. Well, after two years, the king was having some weird dreams himself. Nobody could interpret them. One of the dreams he had was he was sitting by the Nile River and seven fat cows came up out of the Nile and seven lean cows came up out of the Nile and the seven lean cows ate the seven fat cows. You know how weird dreams can be. And yet the lean cows remained lean. Weird. And then Pharaoh had another similar type dream. There were seven healthy heads of grain and seven shriveled heads of grain And I don't know how heads of grain eat other heads of grain, but dreams are weird. And the seven shriveled heads ate the seven full and healthy heads, and yet they remained shriveled. And Pharaoh woke up, and he called all of his wise men, and he called his counselors and his confidants, but nobody could interpret these weird dreams. And everybody was getting tense because they knew if Pharaoh ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And when Pharaoh gets frustrated, heads can roll. Just think of the baker. And so they're really on edge. And finally, the butler remembered, oh, now I remember. There was a guy in prison with me who could interpret dreams. Pharaoh, maybe we need to call on him and get him out. And so they did. They brought him out, had to get him all cleaned up. He was filthy. Get him cleaned up, put some new clothes on him, brought him to Pharaoh. This is Joseph's big moment. Third. Stinking years as a slave. And now he has this big chance. Man, I would have had my elevator speech down for Pharaoh. I would have been so positive, ready to tell him I can do anything, man. Just get me out of this prison. And when he was asked if he could interpret the dream, he responded, I cannot do it. That is not the line I would have used. I would have said, oh, dude, let me tell you, I'm the best at interpreting dreams. Just give me some time. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And then he explained what God had showed him. He said, Pharaoh, look, your dreams are both the same. Seven fat cows, seven full heads of grain, that's the same. It represents seven years of plenty. And the seven lean cows, the seven shriveled heads of grain, represent seven years of famine that are going to follow them. And Egypt will go into bankruptcy and disaster unless during the seven prosperous years you start preparing for the seven lean years and start storing up grain and provisions. What I advise you to do is put somebody in charge of this grand project And when the famine comes, Egypt will be sitting pretty. Genesis 41 verse 37 reads, The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, Can we find anybody like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? By the way, that's the first time in all the scriptures 
that any person in the Bible is described as a person in whom is the spirit of God. Pharaoh was recognizing something about Joseph that wasn't merely human. He was recognizing God's presence in Joseph's life. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Wow. Joseph is on top of the world. He was sold into slavery 13 years older. Earlier, he's now 30 years of age. And my, how suddenly his life has changed. Well, the seven years of abundance followed. And the land produced so much. And they first started recording everything. But finally, they had stored so much away in these granaries that they couldn't even record it all. And they just stopped recording it. And it was during those seven years that Joseph married an Egyptian woman and he fathered two sons. The first one he named Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my troubles. And the second son he named Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now think about this for a moment. God, uh, Joseph names his sons according to kind of the defining things in his life up to that point. What had defined his life up to that point? In his mind, it was troubles and suffering. You ask Joseph over coffee, hey man, what's your life been about? Troubles and suffering. That's what my life's been about. He'd forgotten all the years back when he was a kid growing up. Troubles and suffering. It's just been pretty miserable. These are the things that have defined him up to now and so he names his sons after that and again I say if Joseph had taken a snapshot of his life he might have concluded yeah life is mostly long seasons of trouble troubles and suffering interrupted by brief little moments of serendipity but it still seems pretty meaningless to me I just don't get it. Seems to be rather random and purposeless. I think that's what he would have said. And then the seven years of famine hit after the seven years of plenty. But everything in Egypt was fine because they had all these barns filled with excess grain and other food and supplies. But meanwhile, in the land of Canaan, not all that far away, where the famine also hit, they had no advance warning, you see. And so the food began to run out. And two years into the famine, Joseph got a message. Hey, there are some men here from Canaan. They've come to buy food. Would you be willing to see them? Yes, I'll see them, said Joseph. 
and into his presence walked his brothers. Now remember, he hasn't seen them for roughly 22 years at this point. And they all bowed down before him. And Joseph at this point is having one of those Yogi Berra deja vu all over again kind of moments. Going, wow, I saw this in my dream all those years ago. He didn't tell them who he was at first. And if you know the story, and I can't afford the time to tell you the tricky details, but he played some mind games and some tricks on them for a while just to kind of test them. But they did not know who he was. And they came back after he'd sent them home, sent them home. They came back, and in Genesis 45, they were in front of him again, and he told all of his servants to leave the room, and he closed the doors. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Think about it. Up till now, his life was defined by troubles and suffering. But now, as time goes on, he begins to see in retrospect that something else has been working that he did not detect. The troubles and sufferings of the last 20-something years have been under the hand of God. And I love the way he essentially summarized it. To me, it's very pithy and profound. He said in verse 5, essentially, you sold me, but God sent me. Did you catch that? You sold me, but God sent me. Joseph now is beginning to see the fingerprints of God all over his life. He did not know they were there. And through his troubles and sufferings, he's beginning to see some design. He's beginning to see that God has the right to operate in my life without explaining himself. He sent his brothers back to their father. They came back, all 70 of them, children, grandchildren. They all come. Pharaoh's delighted because Joseph is the savior of Egypt. He's happy to have his family there. He gives them this beautiful, wonderful land on the Nile Delta, a place called Goshen. And for 17 years, until Jacob, the father, dies, they just flourish there. And after he died... He wanted to be buried back in Canaan, so they took a journey back to the land of Canaan to bury their father, Jacob. But now the brothers are freaking. They're thinking, oh no, now that our dad's gone, Joseph is going to get even. So verse 15 of chapter 50 reads, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. They're like saying, he forgot to tell you, Joseph, probably. But, but he told us to tell you, you ought to forgive us. 
And I love Joseph's response in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. Joseph is now 54. And 37 years ago, his brother sold him as a slave. And now he says, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me. Your hearts were evil. What you did was evil and sinful, but God has been operating in ways higher than ours. God worked even in the midst of your evil for all of our good. That does not mean that all the evil they did was the will of God. Please hear that. The brothers were evil, and what they did was evil. But Joseph now is looking through God's wide-angle lens, not at just the hours and the minutes. Joseph's now is beginning to look through the lens of years and even centuries. You sold me, but God sent me. His thoughts are higher than ours. God has the right to operate in my life without explaining himself. He can take even the worst that men dole out and actually bring good out of it. Now, Joseph, in those early years, had no way, no way of knowing that through his troubles and suffering, God would not only provide food for starving people, but he would actually incubate a nation in the womb of Egypt, the nation that eventually became the nation of Israel, that started with 70, would eventually end up with 2 million strong before they left Egypt. A nation through which the Messiah would ultimately come and through which all the nations of the world would be blessed. God's ways are indeed higher than ours. So I close with this challenge. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a 19th century American philosopher. He was not a believer in the biblical sense of the word, but man, is he quotable. And he said so many things that are wise and profound. Here's one of my favorites. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Believe what the years and the centuries say against what the hours and minutes say. I really like that. If Joseph had believed what the hours and the minutes say while in the dungeon, again, he would have concluded... There's no purpose, there's no point, it's meaningless, it's random, it's whimsical. If there is a God, he must be sadistic and cruel. Because not only does he allow horrific trouble to happen, when you do what's right, you get punished. But it took a lot of years until Joseph could finally believe what the years and even the centuries say. Years later, he concluded, yeah, it sure can appear if you take a snapshot that life is without purpose or meaning. Yet in the midst of that seeming chaos, God is working out something higher and better than we could imagine. And here's my final word to you, dear friend. If you take a snapshot of your life right now, for some of you, you would conclude it's a meaningless mess of random events without meaning or purpose. And that's what you'll conclude if you believe what the hours and the minutes say. But if you can dare to believe what the years and the centuries say, 
you'll see that there is a sovereign God who is building an unshakable kingdom that he's invited you to be a part of. You can trust the captain of this aircraft. Father, the way you work blows us away. It's not always the way we would choose it. So I pray for those right now who are going through seasons, much like Joseph perhaps, where their head is spinning with confusion, wondering where in the world is God right now? How could there possibly be any kind of benevolent purpose behind what I'm going through? May we trust our captain, the one who is sovereignly building an unshakable kingdom, Thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're up to. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.